Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Pierce Clegg, and he'll be answering your questions on the Babine River. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Pierce a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them on the show as possible tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on our future broadcasts. Uh, you'll see a form in the right-hand column. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded. will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Pierce Clegg about the Babine River. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience in coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. Before we introduce uh, Pierce, <laughs> we'd like to let you know about uh, the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our home page at askaboutflyfishing.com and fill out that uh, under the link under Pierce's section. Just click there to register for a drawing. Fill out that form, and then we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Pierce's book, Babine, courtesy of amatobooks.com, and here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something we talk about during the show, and you must submit your answer along with your name and location using the text box on our homepage. So listen closely and use your best typing skills, take some notes, and maybe you'll win Pierce's book, Babine. Our guest tonight is Pierce Clegg. Pierce guided for 30 years in the world-famous Babine River. This one-river life of owning and operating a semi-wilderness tourism business has left Pierce with an amazing memory specific to the Babine. That, what was like and how did he get there are the usual questions, plus the incredible trout and steelhead fisheries make living and working in such a place legendary. Now the author of a second book about Babine, Pierce has also explains the challenging road of stewardship for a wild ecosystem supporting grizzly bears, salmon, and so many other values. A familiar heartbreaking story of losing special values in the name of progress. Will we ever learn the lessons and change our ways? And for all those steelhead junkies who have long dreamed about making a trip to Babine, the steelhead experiences there are hard to believe. World records of waking fly madness and wrecked reels, rods, and anger 
a river of steelhead lore and legend. So, Pierce, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Yes, thanks for having me. It's great. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, good to have you. And um, you can help us to learn a lot about the bean after um, we will try. Your book. We will try. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's your job tonight. Educate, because uh, that's what this show's all about, and let people uh, learn, come away having learned something about the fly fishing world. So, so let's uh, let's get started. I don't know that uh, we do have an international audience, and um, I don't know that everybody knows about the Bavine or uh, where it is. Um, why don't you tell us where it is in the world? Um, and how you get there. Yes, uh, Western Canada, the province of British Columbia. Uh, Babine is located in the northern interior section of BC and is a major tributary to the Skeena River, which is a, a west coast uh, river um, that originates in the Prince Rupert area, uh, right near the Queen Charlotte Islands uh, up there in, in uh, northwestern uh, British Columbia. It's uh, about uh, 100 kilometers long, the Babine, and then another 210 kilometers of uh, the Skeena. So um, they're about 275 miles that uh, the anadromous uh, salmon and steelhead run uh, take from wow. the ocean to get to the headwaters. That's a long haul. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's longer ones on the Columbia and you know some other tributaries. So. Uh, these anadromous fish, they, uh, they're used to traveling great distances, but uh, it goes through a couple of formidable, uh, formidable um, canyons, a good canyon in the Skeena and a good canyon in the Babine, and uh, I had a chance to raft those sections a few times and uh, appreciate what these fish go through to get there. It's amazing. Yeah, they truly are amazing. And if you're going to fish uh, the Babine, where, how do you get there? Uh, yeah, our local hub. Way. Yeah, our local hub is Smithers. Most people are, uh, you know, that are flying or connecting through Vancouver, BC to Smithers, BC. Um, you know, some people are driving up uh, uh, from you know Pacific Northwest or Alberta or wherever, and just up Highway 16 eventually runs into Smithers, and then uh, you connect to the very upper Babine uh, River by Logging Road, um, and also by Logging Road at the very bottom end. Although the bottom end uh, doesn't uh, have quite as much in the way of uh, angling opportunity. You, you end up basically fishing uh, the very bottom end of the Babine and mostly the Skeena where it uh, enters the Skeena there at the confluence. But uh, And then the logging road by the, in the upper end and then um, by jet boat uh, to specifically for steelhead, uh, prop boat in the spring and summer for Babine River's famous Rainbow Alley trout area which is the very outlet of Babine Lake. And by the way, Babine Lake is 110 miles long. It's the largest and longest uh, uh, natural freshwater lake in B.C., so it's a big lake. And um, Or you can fly uh, into two of the steelhead uh, lodges on the river. Uh, and the one I used to own, we, we just uh, took all our supplies and clients by jet boat from a federal fish counting weir or fence. That's located mm -hmm. in the very upper Babine. So okay. that's the ways in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, And how long of a boat ride was it to, to your lodge? Well, back in the good old days, uh, you know, we can go back to a little bit of history. Uh, there was a, a landing on Babine Lake called Topley Landing, and that was, you know, 60 to 80 miles from the original trout lodge. 
that was on Babine Lake. And then from there, the daily pilgrimage, uh, say in the fall for steelhead, would be about a oh, about a 10 to 12 mile boat ride to the fish counting fence, which actually was built by boat in the mid 1940s. And then from there, because the jet drive wasn't invented, then you just walked down the river as far as you wanted to walk, and there was a, a limited trail uh, network going partially down the river. So it started out like that, but eventually logging and, and mining came out and provided the road and the access. So now you can drive right to the, the fish counting fence and uh, and launch a jet boat there, or you can drive to the outlet of Babbing Lake and launch a prop boat for the trout section. Okay. So okay. it's had quite a change over the years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, what? Uh, why is the bean so special, or why was it so special? Yeah, that's for sure. Um, you know, number one, it was a better wild river than it is now, but it's still a wild river, you know, unbroken at one time by any bridges, um, you know, free-flowing. It had what was considered, I don't know the current status, the largest interior of B.C. grizzly population, um, the largest average size of steelhead, and the highest catch rate for steelhead. And, you know, basically um, all the other fish and wildlife values that surround a, a large salmon run and everything it does to the ecosystem in and out of the water just, you know, made it extremely exceptional. Um, provincially significant, you know, Arguably, you know, one of the world's finest steelhead rivers, um, uh, sixth largest sockeye producer in BC at one point. Um, you know, just a very large salmon run. So it just makes for amazing values uh, in a you know wilderness remote setting. Uh, certainly, to start with, it was extremely remote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you have uh, lots of stories in your book about. Um uh, I mean, basically seeing grizzlies almost every day on the river, right? That was just kind of a matter of, <laughs> like, like seeing a bluebird or something. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you pretty well lived with them. You know, although I, I just recently had a visit from Carl Matson, so the former owner of the Matson family that I bought the lodge through, um, the son, Carl, came for a, a rare visit. And uh, he mentioned that, you know, in his growing up there, and this was uh, – say, the uh, 70s and maybe into the early 80s, that uh, they didn't see very many grizzly bears. And mm-hmm. that's interesting to hear because I certainly did and um, became quite quite an issue, actually. Uh, we started getting habituated bears from the sports uh, season for sockeye angling that mainly occurred right below the fish counting fence because the fish the sockeye just stacked up waiting to get through the fence. It just took them a little time to get through there. So it was kind of, you know, a great flossing fishery for sockeye. And then, of course, the grizzly bears, as as I think they're, you know, been maybe squeezed a bit on their habitat, they've really zeroed in on all those stacked up fish right below the weir. And, you know, perhaps they've become more dependent on the salmon over time. You know, it's, it's just a big question. So when I heard... Carl say that, I, you know, it's kind of puzzling because when I first got there to, you know, just yesterday going there, I mean, as soon as I launched the boat yesterday, I saw four grizzly bears. So wow. for me, it's always been a river of grizzlies. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have a, you had a story in your book about you had to, uh, you said uh, 
one of the grizzlies was hanging around camp uh, for a bit too too long and for too much, <laughs> and you had to uh, yeah. uh, uh, tranquilize them and take them out in a boat or something. Can you share that? Yeah, it's, yeah. So one of the chapters in the book called "Jet Boat Grizzly" because, uh, and I said I'd never touched a grizzly until I got on the Babine. So, yes, this bear became a problem. A uh, series of you know close calls and stories going on. So, I called the conservation officers here, and uh, back then they had a budget to help you with problem bears. Now, not so much. They more or less destroy them for the most part. But anyway, so they came down with a half a moose and. And, uh, you know, some cable snares and the bear sold the moose meat and then they started using our kitchen food and I said, oh boy, now you're doing that. We gotta, you guys gotta stay here until we get this bear. And, and, uh, so then, yes, it got snared eventually. We tranquilized it. And then the fun starts when you go up to the bear and you pull on its lips and ears and you kind of make sure it's out cold and then you take the cable <laughs> snare off. And that's when you kind of go, okay, how's this gonna go? And, drag this bear down a little embankment and put it in my jet boat for a ride up to the weir to a bear, transfer it to a bear trap. And I tell you, what, you know, it didn't go completely smoothly. The bear was waking up, and, and it was it was quite the experience for sure. <laughs> in the boat, uh, the bear is waking up, right? The bear is waking up in the boat. Uh, you know, the, the jet drive is cavitating and going up the river, and it wakes up and sits up. It's got a gunny sack over its head, and it's kind of, you know, sitting up but still kind of out of it, and one CEO's got a SSG slug shotgun pointed at him, and the other one's got another syringe of horse elephant tranquilizer, and I'm kind of wondering what's going to happen. But we made it up to the weir, and and then I got it out of the boat, and then it stood up and walking around and growling at us, and so we decided to you know put some more elephant tranquilizer in it, and then it launched itself after it got stabbed in the ass by the needle that launched itself towards the river and fell face first in the river and was just going to drown. So then we had to pull it out of the river, and it's snarling at us. And and, uh, oh and then we let it, you know, pass out again. And then, like a Keystone Cop movie, we tried to shove it into this bear trap. And then it woke up again, and it was pushing out as we're pushing in. And it was quite the scene. We finally got the door shut. And it was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, my God. I yeah. mean, that, that sounds like a scene in a movie. It really does, you know. I mean, it's yeah. so bizarre, you know. Um, yeah, but, like uh, a John Candy it, uh, Canadian wilderness movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you've, well, you, know, you lived to tell about it. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, there's that's so, many, so many bear stories to tell, so many. I mean, we lived with them. Yeah. All kinds of bear stories, uh, you know, bears that stalk you, bears, you know, you you know, I'm a sleepy head and I'm walking to my jet boat in the morning with my bag and I just, you know, I'm not looking up and all of a sudden I just about run into one. I mean, we just lived with them there and, and it was amazing to watch them do their thing and also to know it seemed to be a good fit between angler and bear and salmon in that they were happy, they had lots of food, they weren't interested in us or our buildings and food. I mean, it was very rare that there was any shenanigans at no. camp because our camp was located on one of their prime feeding pools, a big eddy. And they love eddies because the fish sort of drift in there and pile up, and it's just like a an easy meal. Yeah. So, you know, almost every night they're, you know, in camp. And uh, it was a good fit, but it, you yeah. know, made, makes for lots of adventures and stories for sure. Yeah. When did uh, sport fishing really get started on the Vadim? Yeah, and that, you know, that's that's a good question. I 
I know that Ainer, or, uh, Mac Anderson, he was the one that started Norlakes in the late 1940s. So the weir was built, I think, around 1945, so I'm told. And Mac Anderson, he started getting Norlakes built, um, three little log cabins built by Axe uh, with the help of the Fort Babine residents. And um, he was open for business by 49. There was no other, you know, sport fishing uh, presences there. Um, you know, he was only accessible by boat, again, from way down the lake or float plane. And so very, very remote. No roads in there, no logging, no mining. Um, you know, the weir was built by boat. The Indian village was remote, uh, cut off by any roads, still living off the land and trapping and, you know, doing all the things that the Indians had done for centuries there. So that was a pretty remote setting. And then also I have to give some credit, too, because Bob Wickwire also came along, you know, uh, and I'm not sure exactly what dates. You have to take a look at his his book that he wrote not too long ago. But I think between Mac Anderson at first and then later on Bob Wickwire and Ainer Matson, I think the the two of them, uh, when the jet drive was created in the, you know the very early 60s, 61, 62, they both immediately started building you know structures down the river. Uh, by and able to you know use the jet boat to access those structures, so it was kind of a race between the two to build their their you know Anner built a camp, Bob Wickwire built a lodge, and the Wickwire family built you know a lodge on Babbing Lake. They built a lodge on the outlet of Melkickwa Lake, and then they built two lodges on the Babbing River. So that was quite a pioneer effort for them. But I think Mac Anderson should get the credit for the the first on the scene, and then exactly what follows from there is uh, maybe up to speculation on exact dates. I couldn't say for sure. I yeah. just haven't no, been able to get the information. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and then uh, the Madsons uh, teamed up with uh, Mac and, and went from there. Is that? Well, uh, Mac Anderson, yeah, Aner came along uh, and partnered up, and then within the first year that Aner was there, there was uh, four partners, and Tom Stewart, uh, Mac Anderson, Aner Madsen, and um, Cecil Brown, the first year, uh, both Mac Anderson and Tom Stewart died. And Mac Anderson drowned in guiding, while guiding a couple guests on the Bear River, a tributary that goes into the Sustut. And, uh, and so all of a sudden, Aner's just down to one partner. He later got a third, and then he eventually cashed out the two partners, and then just, you know, he was the heart and soul for, for just about 33 years or something like that. He passed away of cancer. So really, it was his passing that was my opportunity because the wife and children didn't want to run the business anymore. I also tell the story that, you know, two men had to die for my happiness. One was Aner. The other one was another fellow that was passing away of cancer in the same cancer clinic, and that's uh, my current wife's uh, first husband. He passed to cancer with Aner. So it's kind of an interesting story that I somehow end up here. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was um, when you uh, and then yeah you bought it from um, Manson's right um, right from Joy the, Joy Manson yeah right uh, the wife yeah um, and mm-hmm. what was fishing like when you got there it, it wasn't fly fishing was it was, was it more oh yeah eight, well yes uh, you know interestingly enough one of the first fly only sections of British Columbia occurred in the 1970s and it was Rainbow Alley the Babbing rivers fly fishing only section so and that section is the 
section of river between Babbing Lake and Nelkikwa Lake, and then Nelkikwa Lake is fly only, and then the outlet of Nelkikwa Lake downstream past the fish counting fence to the first creek on the left called uh, Nichiesqua Creek. So there was, you know, this fly fishing only section, you know, early on. So, you know, by the time I showed up, of course, we're all fly only, and I had very few oh, guests okay. that wanted to troll lures on, say, Babbing Lake. They're you can still troll lures on Babbing Lake, but I had, you know, 99% fly fishing room from the get-go. The other oh, thing okay. was, you know, that, you know, here I am a beginner. I'm I'm a total beginner. I caught my first steelhead on the Babbing in 1985. You know, I, I haven't jet boated. I haven't guided, blah, blah, blah. But the river was so rich in its fishery, it was just like a beginner could be covered by the Babbing until the babine could be covered by a more seasoned guide. And I learned from the best. I learned from all kinds of, you know, anglers that were really, really good. And you can quickly learn just by watching and talking and, and, and then you practice yourself. So I kind of had it easy because it was such an incredible fishery that probably I'll just never forget how incredible it was when I started out because it covered it covered me very nicely. <laughs> It made me look good, and, and a lot of the old-time guests, I mean, they knew I was green, just got there, and they were just laughing. They were just laughing. But the Babine had us all, you know, covered, so it was, uh, you know, I had to learn quick, and there was a lot of things to do and take on, but, I mean, I was very, very blessed by having such a river. Yeah, yeah, very good. Let me uh, take a quick break here, um, Pierce, and when we come back, we'll uh, we'll talk more about the Babine. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as an unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I am convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. That's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Pierce Clegg about the Babine River. If you'd like to ask Pierce a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Um, let's see here. Um, yeah. And I can vouch for those watermasters I have. The two original <laughs> ones before Watermaster and another and a Watermaster, so I can vouch for them. Oh, yeah. good, good, yeah, yeah. Rich Stuber, uh, owner of that, um, you know, they produce some nice products, kind of, kind of one of a kind, you know, uh, a boat. You know, there's nothing really else like it. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I've used them um, for remote uh, chopper drops and uh, spring steelhead streams, and something else. Anyways, oh, back wow. to the topic. Huh. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, when you first connected up there, did you go up there as a guest, or how did you first arrive at the Babine, you know, before you started thinking about buying yeah. the place? 
Yeah, my father's great uncle, he supposedly was one of the first guests in 1949, and there was some sort of San Francisco Chronicle article supposedly written about their trip. And then uh, my father worked for him, and uh, he took my father up there in the mid-1960s. And uh, I remember my dad telling me stories about when he had uh, gone to Ain or Matson's original satellite cabin in 1965, and so that was kind of neat. And then he started taking his father, and uh, and then eventually, uh, in 1977, he took uh, my mom and my brother and I, and uh, we in June, early June, for trout. And then again in 1985, I went up there for trout fishing with my family. And it was at that time that Joy was announcing to all the guests that the place was for sale. And it just went in one ear and out the other. I, it, you know, didn't register with me. And then there's a good friend of the family and a great investor. His name is Jack Mussey from San Francisco. And we were walking to breakfast from one of the cabins in the morning. And he said, well, why don't you and your dad, you know, partner up and, and buy this place? And I kind of went. And that's when the light bulb sort of sort of flickered in my brain. And I I, asked, I said to my dad, uh, you know, what do you, what do you think of that? And he, and he just turned to me and says, are you serious? And I said, sure, yeah, I'm serious. <laughs> I didn't know what I was really thinking (laughs) Uh, you know so then i wrote a letter to joy mattson expressing interest and you know please send financials etc etc because i was you know a business degree graduate and a banker at the time branch manager for a household finance corporation branch in uh, silicon valley california of all places making loans to the very first apple commercial apple computer building and their employees oh boy but anyway so then joy calls and says uh you know, you, you, you've you been to the Trout Lodge twice, but you haven't been to the Steelhead Camp. We have an opening for a guide, September of 85. Why don't you come down and do that, and then you'll know for sure whether you want to buy this place. So that was an adventure. I kind of had to lie my way through the border because I didn't realize that you couldn't just come up and work. And I did work for no wage or whatever, but irregardless, it was kind of a no-no then. But anyway, I snuck through the border and was on the river for a month, and, of course, that just turned my heart, gave me tunnel vision. Uh, you know, I had such a wonderful experience there with seeing these amazing steelhead and happy anglers and bears and wolves and salmon. And, you know, it was just, it was just, I'd never seen anything like it. And I just fell in love with it right away. And then I couldn't be talked out of trying to find my way up to Canada. So that's kind of the long and the short of it. 1985, that was, uh, and, you know, the biologists will tell you, 84, 85, and 86 were what they called anomaly years for the steelhead run. The steelhead runs those three years in a row were just absolutely exceptional, and, uh, you know, it was uh, was like child's play to catch numerous steelhead, and, and I saw a waking fly, you know, action. I saw, I saw this great fly fishing. I saw great gear fishing, because back then it wasn't fly only, so to speak, and it still isn't by regulation, but all the lodges, you know, hadn't really turned to fly only yet. So I saw some incredible gear fishing, too, and I just thought, this is crazy. Uh, yeah. It looks great to me, and it was an easy sell at that point, really. Yeah, yeah. But you Not really didn't know what you were getting into. Right? Was, <laughs> I, you know, I was, I was clueless. Yep, clueless. And <laughs> How old were you then? I was, I was 25. 25? 25. Oh, my goodness. 20, 24 in 1985, looking at the place, and then 25 is the new owner. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So it was well, yeah, it was pretty amusing, I'm sure, to some of the longtime guests. I'm sure it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with this kid running this place. <laughs> right. Uh, the, uh, right. Um, the, what were some of the challenges? Well, when you first got there, when you, and just to orient people, there's the, um, the, the Trout Lodge, so to speak, and then there's the Steelhead Camp, two different places on the river, right, that you had to right. start out so, managing? Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, you know, the trick was ice breakup. You know, as soon as the ice broke up on Babbing Lake because it was thick enough to drive logging trucks on there, um, you know, you got into the lodge and you had about two weeks, if you were lucky, to get the thing open, repaired, ready for business. And then you start with your first guest towards the end of May and you'd, you know, end with your trout lodge guests at, say, mid-August. And you, at first, I moved to the steelhead camp, sometimes with guests in those early years, no break in between the seasons. And then you start up with the steelhead preparations and have your first guests. Back in those days, we had first guests by August 27th. So it was fast and furious, uh, not you know, a young man's game, just go, go, go. And then we would uh, basically run the season until about November 3rd or so, and then Eventually, I figured out how to run it to November 18, which was kind of a bit crazy because you're looks like you're on a, a ski holiday, you know, in the bugaboos instead of uh, you know running a fishing camp. But but I did it anyway, so it was a good six months straight, solid, uh, you know, amazing hard work, but you know, really rewarding in terms of the environment you're working in. And then and then you know my goodwill, you know, as the years went on. It was just fantastic, and so, you know, just great great guests and a great environment, awesome fishing, and just so many stories in my mind I can't even, I can't even begin. Yeah. The, um, you mentioned salmon, but you're not mentioning salmon as, um, as a, a game fish that you targeted, right? People didn't come there to fish for salmon, I take it. Yeah, they sure didn't. Uh, there was a time, August was the month, especially the first couple of weeks of August, when we used to have a good Chinook run that I did target Chinook fishing with some guests and uh, for a short time. But, um, you know, really the management of our salmon throughout my time on Babine has just been increasingly worse and worse and worse to the point where, you know, it, there really wasn't a viable product there. And besides it, it really, um, you know, it, it sort of turned into a, a sports sockeye fishery of which um, I was still trying to do trout and then prep for steelhead. So it, it really didn't represent a, a good viable uh, opportunity either that way because if they didn't get enough sockeye, then, of course, the season could be canceled. And I, So I had, you know, I had a good following for trout and I had a good following for steelhead and I did not have a good following for salmon, but I didn't have good management of salmon either, and it didn't look like that was where the future would be anyway. So it was kind of a, you know, a no-brainer, although I regret in my early years not really targeting the Chinook on the fly because that's become a real popular product, you know, up until our closures here. But, um, you know, I should have uh, learned that and taken an advantage of that, but I just I didn't see it at the time so I, I let it go and and now it's uh you know now our salmon run is really in trouble yeah yeah so that's what, um, <laughs> what were some of the challenges you faced when you were getting started uh, managing and guiding 
Yes, well, I mean, obvious challenges were I inherited, so to speak, a high-volume, low-price old operation with uh, the heart and soul of it being passed away for a good solid three years and probably not too healthy for maybe a fourth year. So the place, at, you know, was a bit run down when I got there and in need of some upgrades. And But at the same time, I was pretty young and naive, so, you know, knowing exactly what to do and when and all that, I basically had to just kind of muddle my way through the first few years trying to figure out uh, how to uh, fix up the place. I also had uh, an aging clientele. Many of them had been coming there since before I was born, and they were literally just passing away my my annual Christmas letter kind of read like a obituary of sorts because I had to list all the people that had passed away. And so it was, uh, you know, replacing a goodwill. Uh, I think that was another challenge. And then the worst one of all was uh, what they what I called the bridge fight, where um, there was a, a proposal to build three new logging bridges on the Babbing River and clear cut it right to the water. And, and that just, you know, when I realized how serious that was, that just horrified me and made my heart sink. And I just kind of had to just go at it full tilt on that end of things. And I'll tell you what, that was uh, probably the largest unknown in terms of time and money and investment that uh, took me away from my family even more so than, you know, just running a tourism business and doing all the sports shows in the winter and the travel. It was meetings and lobbying and, you know, it was it was crazy. So everything at once was, uh, like I say, a young man's game. I had the passion and I had the energy and I burned it up real good and got some things done. But, uh, you know, it was it was crazy. I look back at it now, and I'm not sure how in the heck I did it. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, well, you know, somehow it got done. You know, it got yeah. done. And then they also, I think the Babbing 2 was sort of becoming legend at that point. The Skeena watershed was becoming more and more legendary. You know, there was a lot of, um, you know, press with the Kispiox world record and, you know, all the catch rates of the Skeena and the great Skeena watershed. So, you know, I sort of uh, also, you know, rode a, a good marketing wave of the Skeena being becoming world famous for, you know, steelhead primarily, and uh, and then the Babine in particular, uh, really being the top of the steelhead pile as far as I could tell. I, 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 I was just certain that, you know, I, without even knowing it, I stumbled upon one of the greatest steelhead rivers in the world, and lucky me, I'm right in the middle of it. So. Um, yeah. You know that that was consuming, and then the trout fishery was nothing to, you know, nothing to be ashamed about. It was uh, fantastic, and uh, so I was just very, very fortunate to, you know, be a one river guide. You know, a lot of guides guide on more than one river. I was just one river, seven days a week for six months in a row for 28 years straight. Wow! Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. that was consuming. When you got there, were they running the jet boats when you got there, or was that something you brought on board later? Oh, no, that was early 60s, the jet drive, uh, you know, John Stallman for uh, San Leandro uh, Berkeley Jets or whatever. I forget the exact wording on the name, but um, as soon as that jet drive was invented, it just changed everything for building camps on rivers to deal with steelhead on the Skeena watershed, really. And... uh, You know, and it's morphed over the years into sport jets, um, which has has been a paradigm shift because the old jet drives have a shoe hanging down, and, you know, you have to have some level of skill, particularly on the Babbian River. It's got a lot of dark 
tea color, dark bottom, sleeper rocks. It's very, very hard to read, and it was just notorious for wrecking jets. So the sport jet has changed that because you can kind of motor and bounce off rocks and things like that. But so, so when I got there, it was uh, 1969, 1970 Johnson 40s with these jets on there, and uh, we had one 1970 Evinrude 70 horsepower. So they were. It was an old stock that Ainer had for a number of years, and I quickly had to upgrade that over the years because uh, they were old and brittle and easy to break, and I was always work, working on engines. So you try and upgrade, and over the years, the products have, have definitely improved. When Yamaha sold an engine with a jet drive on it, that changed everything. And, uh, yeah, because you know, sort of so in your book, you were talking back. about, yeah, prior to the jet uh, boats, that um, with the, the regular prop uh, motors with props on them, you, you were hitting rocks, and it was really kind of a, a messy deal, right? Really hard to run the river? Yeah. Well, they just didn't run the river. Uh, the, Aner had a transom lifter device, you know, and when the water was high, he could put a put a boat uh, down to a confluence of the Nelkikwa River, which goes in the Babine, and it's just upstream of where, you know, his present-day camp is now. And you, so he built a trail from the fish counting weir, to the gravel bar, and then he'd hop in the boat and back on down to where the steelhead camp is and then built another trail on the other side of the river down to a pool they still call today Lower Trail, that's the name Lower Trail. So really in the 1940s, 50s, and even the early 60s, this was how they fished it. They didn't fish the entirety of the, the runs and pools that I accessed with uh, jet drive. It, uh, it was much more restricted until that jet drive really opened up the river, and then Aner and Bob both built satellite cabins, and then I later, Aner's collapsed, and Bob Wickwire burnt his as part of uh, moving to the Silver Hilton location, so I luckily renewed his lease before restrictions came in, and I built a cabin there, and, and then all those runs and pools down there didn't have any names, so, you know, the jet drive, for me, I could access that area, I could learn to fish the area, I could build the cabin down there, and that was kind of a really fun pioneering phase of the river where we were learning runs and pools and naming them and, you know, taking our guests down there where Aner and Bob had more or less quit going down there for sort of speculative reasons. I'm not sure exactly why, but they just kind of quit going down there and they competed against each other on the upper end. So that yeah. was, but anyway, yes, the jet drive before that, it was hike. Hike, hike. fish. Yeah. Well, tell us about some of the names of the holes that, that you guys named these. It was, I mean, almost every spot in the river has a, a name now, right? But uh, some of them came about, yes. you know, through uh, <laughs> deaths as well as experiences and uh, all kinds of things, right? Right. When I yeah, when I got there, you know, there was a lot of run, you know, runs of pools that were named. A lot of them last names from some of the first guests were there that you know kind of kept coming and were part of the original goodwill they were rewarded with a, a pool named after usually their last name so it was a lot of that and there were just some other names that had to do with convenience of you know location or you know uh you know something that happened or whatever and then there was all these pools that weren't named so i got the fun of you know in my clients of naming a few there and really i wish that you know probably looking back given a little bit more thought because a lot of times some of the names were when we were just going down by jet boat, and, and they were just points of references, uh, places that stuck out, you know, some 
tree or, you know, some sort of part of the river, you know, like canyon. There's a pool called Canyon because it's a big little canyon. You know, nothing really too uh, original. But then after a while, we started to name them based on something happening. So, for example, this pocket, rocket pocket, which uh, I think is the most amazing steelhead pocket that God ever created. And, and it sort of filled in over the years, and it really isn't there anymore, which is absolute crying shame because it was, if there was a guarantee of a pocket where you could almost like 100% guarantee that not just one angler would catch a steelhead, but where I could rotate all my satellite, overnight satellite cabin guests that were having a slow day. If I just rotated them through rocket pocket, they'd all get steelhead. And sometimes that little pocket would, you know, double digits every time you fished it. It was just crazy. And so a lot of the fish rocketed out of the pocket, and that's how it got its name. Or uh, years ago, I asked Bob Wickwire when I was uh, built the satellite cabin that we call Beaver Flats on the ash heap of his old cabin. I said, Bob, is there anything you can tell me about the, you know, the runs and pools up there? And I'm just getting to know him. He says, well, um, I guess you're still talking about that rock. And there's this big, big boulder in the, in a pool. And I dropped a guest off on the boulder, and then they're kind of stuck on it. They can't, if they want to get off it, they'd have to swim to shore. So I always tell them, well, here's your challenge. You have to catch a fish off this rock, and you have to land it on this rock, or I'm not picking you up. So we had lots of fun with that rock, and I think, you know, Bob was saying his guests were still talking about that rock, and I know why. So things like that. Yeah. 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 You know. The, um, I mean, there must be hundreds of pools uh, in that area, right, that all, uh, most mm, of the No, it, I, I think, you know, the bad being, one thing that makes the bad being, maybe greater than than other rivers that is simply because the fishable waters are more concentrated than say a lot of other tributaries of the Skeena even and so you have uh, really if it's if it's 65 miles long Babine two-thirds of it are fishable one-third is basically a whitewater rafting canyon with very little fishing opportunity and so you know so two-thirds of 65 you you end up having, you know, basically about, oh, 35 miles, you know, 40 at the most, but 35 or so really good miles of, of river. Well, you know, the Bulkley Maurice is much longer than that. Kispiak is much longer than that. Skeen is much longer than that. You know, so those that, that run, they concentrate. And, um, you know, that's what, uh, you know, I think contributes to the high catch rate. And yeah. uh, so... In the section that I guided for those years, it was 75 runs and pools in about a 17-mile section. And then there was a bit of a canyon separating us from the Silver Hilton water. Not that you couldn't run it, um, but it just pr- provided more of a risk, and I didn't want to take that risk with my guests and, and have a, you know an engine failure or you know, an accident or anything like that. So I just didn't go down there. Um, and now with sport jets and even the be- boats I have, you, you can do it. It's just, uh, you know, why do it when, you know, 75 runs in pools, uh, Silver Hilton has not that many, so why, why go pick on their water? Um, yeah. We just kept to ourselves up there, and happily so, because there was plenty of runs in pools for, you know, the guests I had at the time. It was so the like, Silver Hilton was another uh, a competitive lodge, so to speak, up there, right? Yeah, there's there's three of them. You have Babby Norlakes on the very top end, sharing that uh, upper 
third of the Babine with Babine Steelhead Lodge, and then you have the middle third of the Babine that's Silver Hilton, and then the lower third is really a, a whitewater rafters product. Uh, time to take yeah. another break. When we come back, we'll, we'll learn more about the fishing the Babine River in uh, British Columbia. Looking for that shot at a permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now at WhiprayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's Whipray, C-A-Y-E, FishingLodge.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Pierce Clegg about the Babine River. If you'd like to ask Pierce a question, just go to our homepage and ask about fly fishing and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your questions immediately. We'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. So um, back then, when you start, I um, kind of like to transition from when you started and, and purchased the lodge and started guiding, how did you fish your clients back then, and how did you fish them just uh, before you got out of the business, and by fish them, I mean what was a day like in, in a in a client's uh, in a client's trip there? Yeah, it, it really uh, extended the the Matson traditions, which were strong traditions that uh, you know a youngster in his mid twenties dare not change uh, for all the goodwill that was fully established by them. So, really, I, I extended those traditions and I kept them. Uh, some people say to a fault, but I kept them anyway. And basically, uh, your basic routine was to be woken up uh, in your in your cabin by me with a coffee tray serving coffee, hot chocolate, tea, or half and half, like a cafe mocha or something. And I'd do that just before 7 and light your, your fire. So warm up your cabin, give you a nice hot beverage. And then you had uh, basically people were pretty gung-ho. I mean, Ainer had them trained. They got up right away, did their sundries, came into the lodge for, you know, breakfast, ordered a short order breakfast. There was a lunch table put out. They could make their lunch while their breakfast was being made. And a lot of the guests were, you know, if I got them up at 7, they were ready to go in the boat by 8, uh, 8 o'clock, ready to be guided. So it was, you know, fast and furious. And then you fish, you know, all day, whether it was at the trout lodge or at Steelhead Camp, you'd fish till about 5.30. Dinner was at 6.30. And then the only catch with Trout Lodge is with our northern, you know, sun hours, uh, we were guiding after dinner till, you know, midnight lots. And so the guiding was actually pretty brutal on the Trout Lodge, and people really got their money's worth in terms of guiding because I don't know of any operation that guides after dinner every day. Steelhead Camp, though, in the fall got pretty dark, you know, as the fall progressed. So you're basically off the river by 5.30, and if you wanted to go fishing after dinner, you could fish in the camp hole. And not too many people did that. They were generally pretty satisfied. And uh, when it was dark, it was glowballing time. And uh, one of my uh, guests, the first chapter of the book, the professor, he talks about this glowballing, and it was uh, 
glow-in-the-dark uh, corkies that were had this luminous paint, and you'd fire them up with a camera flash, and you could, you know, catch a few more. And or you could put that on a on a fly rod and swing it at night or whatever. So there wasn't too many people that did that, but I think the people that did had a lot of fun. And that was basically the routine. Um, generator was on till about 11:30 at night, and then it was lights out, and everybody rest up and get ready for another day. So it was, you know, pretty. That was a pretty consistent routine from the end of May to early November. And what was it like for the guests on the river? I mean, what was the guide to guest ratio? And uh, were yeah. they? Did you stand next to your guests or in between them, or or were they dropped off and picked up, or how, how did that work? At the trout lodge, um, there was uh, three uh, angling guides, including myself. For up to 21 guests, when I started out, I, I you know got it down to a dull roar of uh, 14 in my latter years. But um, so you know many of the guests were unguided, which was you know a little bit nerve-wracking sometimes uh, because you know the river does have some challenges in the trout section. But anyway, there would be three of us guiding, and then we'd have 10 to 11, sometimes 12 boats out there. So only three guided boats, and the rest were unguided. And then at Steelhead Camp, it was, again, three guides, including myself. And when I started out, it was 18 guests. That was, the again, the Mattson high-volume, low-price scheme. And then I reduced that over the years to 11, still three guides, including myself. So, uh, yeah, there was dropping off. There was, you know, keen on the people that needed the help most or the people that maybe were a little elderly and you wanted to keep an eye on or that kind of thing. Um you know, a lot of bouncing around on the river, a lot of time spent standing with people and teaching and, you know, and, and taking pictures and, you know, all those kind of things. But, yeah, you you were busy every day on the guide scene. You were busy, no doubt about it. And uh, you weren't just standing around too much, but there was a lot of one-on-one with guests where you are walking them through a pool and teaching them, you know, how to fish that pool and giving them, you know, your two cents worth of how you would fish it and teaching them the structure of the runs and pools and and what to do and those kind of things, what, you know, and hazards and all that kind of stuff. Keeping people safe was also something that, you know, was always on my mind to make sure that uh, everybody was safe all day long, especially with the bears around. And, you know, just you got to be around and being present. It's, uh, you know, maybe not as, as good as an operation to have a guide for every one or two guests, but... Again, that wasn't tradition that I inherited, nor the accommodations for that either. Mm. So, you know, I just kept to that tradition, and it worked out. It worked out just fine. I, I don't think, uh, as I recall, my goodwill wasn't really complaining that they weren't getting enough of my time. We made sure that we key on those uh, people that needed the help and the beginners and get them going, and then uh, then they were away to the races and uh, just as happy as I, I was that first year I was on the river, just yeah. you know, marveling at its amazement. Yeah. Has that um, has the operation changed much now that you've left? Or is it oh, I think you know, and I think with every new owner, like it was the end of the Matson era, you know, and then the beginning of the Clegg era, and uh, you know, and then when I sold to uh, Billy Labonte and Kerry Collingwood, oh, now it's their era, and they're they're doing things differently than I did for sure. Um, you know, you'd have to ask the guests what they think of it. Uh, but yeah. I think, generally speaking, they're 
you know, they're trying to do the best they can. And, you know, that's what I did when all of a sudden you own and operated it. It takes you on a ride and, you know, you got to give it your best shot. Otherwise you're, you can't make goodwill by making too many mistakes and not caring about what's going on and being sincere and being passionate, all those things, being professional, blah, blah, blah. You, you only make goodwill by doing the right job, you know, and doing yeah. a good job. And, and, you know, of course, if you're on a great river, that's very helpful. But you still yeah. need to do a good job with your accommodations, your meals, your, your transportation, your services on and off the river at night, all night. You know, there was times when I made medical evacuations at night in the pitch dark in a jet boat, you know, but that's what you had to do. And you just, you do what you need to do to make goodwill because if you don't make goodwill, you're not going to stay in business. I don't care who you are. Right. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, you know, that you had a, a few battles with the government and the logging industry about the bridges and and I think some other battles as well. And with all that, you were able to stop a number of bridges, as I understood, and stop clear-cutting down to the river. But can you kind of explain what, what ha- you know, where it was and where, where it is now as far as the logging goes? Are they done with that? Um, has it affected the river, uh, you know, radically yeah. or partially? Or? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've all heard the term, the tragedy, the commons, but... Uh, you know, it's it's a great tribute to the guests, the steelhead guests of all three operations on that river, and to the rafters and kayakers. They had an association group as well, and to uh, the good guys in government that I found that helped me, like Ray Travers, Dave Narver. Um, you know, there's a number of them. Rick Careless, who helped push the park status, did a great job. Some various consultants. It's just a great tribute to everybody that recognized that the river was exceptional and worth preserving to the greatest extent that we all could collaboratively do uh, with the limited funds that we were able to raise. And um, because, you know, there was no other babines, and there still isn't any other babines. And I think lots of special places on earth that just are unequaled by any other place. And so those are the ones you got a key on. And I always sort of felt like it wasn't about protecting my business because there were viable steelhead operations, you know, right on the highway in downtown Telqua or wherever. It wasn't about protecting my business. It was about protecting that river. So I became extremely passionate, and I'm very lucky that my guests also supported me in that passion and a number of people inside and outside government that helped me with my passion because – I was like a bull in a china shop. I was possessed to do whatever I could do. And uh, now, what's happened since? Well, I see one of the questions here, you know, what are your thoughts on the new owners of Babbing Steelhead Lodge? But I think when you think of any of the owners on the Babbing River, whether it's Silver Hilton, Babbing Steelhead Lodge, or Babbing Norlakes, if you want to judge how you think they're doing, then you have to look at the Babbing River Foundation and the Babbing Watershed Monitoring Trust as real key indicators as to how much they care about stewardship and raising money to do good things for that river. Because if all you're doing is charging a fee for guests and giving them a good time on the river and and looking for your next booking for next year, then you know what? Boy, the forest industry, mining industry, I don't care who it is, they – they're going to see that your guard is down, and they're going to take full advantage of it, and that's what they are doing right now is they are 
still logging at a, at a really high rate of cut. And I said in my book one way of looking at it, we've all heard of, I believe it's Patagonia's 1%, 1% for the planet program. I don't know if they still right. do it. But anyway, at one point I was thinking of signing up with that uh, when I had the business. But anyway, the amount of timber that was deleted from being cut to make the Babine Park was 1%. The other 99% is going to get cut. Now, you tell me if you can preserve a great wild river with taking 99% basically of the merchantable timber in its watershed. I don't think it's possible. Well, that's what forestry and our public policy thinks possible. So they're going at it. So you have to fight. You have to fight for your values. And that was one of the things that we keyed on is, well, what are the values of the Babine River? Well, there's the grizzly. There's the salmon. There's the steelhead. Okay, where do they spawn? Map out the entire, every single tributary and capillary and entire watershed. Map out all the logging roads. Map out the park, all the special management zones, all the bear zones, all the winter range for goats. Just map all those values out and then try and figure out how you can protect it all. It's a massive undertaking. It takes a lot of time and energy and money, and it's not easy to do. And now that I don't own it anymore, I'm not involved with it, but... I would say if you want to judge how things are going, you know, how's the Babbing River Foundation doing? How's the Babbing Watershed Monitoring Trust doing? Because if they're not doing very good, I'll guarantee you the ecosystem of that watershed is not, you know, it's threatened, plain and simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think everything, um, U.S. and Canada, is threatened uh, as far as our, uh, you know, wildlands. Yeah, we have a... You know the scheme, the mighty skein of watershed. I mean, I I just did an interview with our just our local paper, and I said, well, it's time to start looking at what the skein of watershed will look like without salmon and steelhead, because we are getting closer and closer to that wow. season or that year. And I said, what's that going to look like? Because uh, everybody's kind of missing the boat. We're all protesting uh, LNG pipelines right now. It's just everybody's got a hard on to stop a pipeline. Meanwhile, their salmon and steelhead run is, you know, more or less on the endangered list, so to speak. We have closure is the only management tool that government uses now. So what's it going to look like when the whole thing's closed? Because this year it was more or less closed to salmon, just about. It hasn't been closed to steelhead, although there was talk of it when our water temperature was getting too warm, and there were contingencies, too, for it. So, okay, that's 2019, and we're going to hang in there with the steelhead. Our run is, you know, really subpar. It's one of our worst. Last year wasn't much better. So 2020, 2021, I don't know. Uh, it's, a, it's an uncertain future, and, and I don't see anybody doing anything about it. And uh, there's fish so? farms, you know, there's gill yeah. netting, there's poor logging, there's mining. Those are issues we've had for quite some time. We still haven't solved any of those. And then you throw onto that Fukushima right now, and I think everybody better wake up and understand what's going on with with that whole situation. And you don't hear anything. So I am sincerely concerned, and I just yeah. I don't know uh, why we feel so powerless to do anything or organize. Uh, you know, our angling communities are. They're always fractious, you know, at the best of times. It's hard for everybody to get along, but I think we need to pull together. Everybody needs to pull together 
and soon if there's a, a, well, even, a chance. Even even things that are like almost front page news, like you know Pebble Mine situation yep. in Alaska. Right. It's still a major yeah. fight and still not done. And uh, you know it's not going to turn out good if they get in there. Yeah. So I, I think I've mentioned this yeah. on other shows. I was up in uh, you know like Kississing up in uh, Manitoba, mm-hmm. um, very northern part. Went up there fishing, and the guy took us uh, one evening um, over to this other lake, and he wanted to show us what a mining operation had done to the area. And um, mm-hmm. they had mined that area. There was a lake, and uh, it was probably oh, 30, 40 acres in that area where it was all kind of orangey, and um, and not a weed was growing there, not one weed. Yeah. Um, and the yeah. lake was dead. And, you know, yeah. that was years and years ago, but... Uh, yeah. you know, we're still fighting those battles, you know, and they just left it, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, and, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, in this interview to the newspaper fellow, I was saying, you know, look, it's not, it's not our, it's not, sometimes, it, you know, everybody likes to vilify the companies, you know. It's easy to beat on a logging company or, you know, a fish farm company or a mining company or whatever. But, you know, it's the rules that the government makes. We, the people, make the rules, Right. And a lot of times when I was fighting the logging industry, they, they were following the rules that were given to them. And so yeah, really it's our public policy. And how do you, you know, you got to change that. And that without changing the ground, you know, work here, we're not going to change the logging practices without changing the rules. We're not going to change the fish farms without changing, you know, the rules and things like that. And back in the... You know, in the 60s and 70s, the mining companies were kind of like the cowboy industry of the bush. They did all kinds of things out there that nobody yeah. knows about. You know, yeah, and, uh, exactly. and it, did, it does a lot of long-term damage. I mean, you know, and I tried to sort of touch on that on the book. I says, look, we're, you know, we're not uh, trying to, you know, save the planet, so we better think about saving ourselves because uh, we don't seem to be, the human species doesn't seem to really be interested and doing the kinds of things that support wild ecosystems anywhere on the planet, really. Yeah. So you it's think, a sad um, commentary, but whatever can you do. Yeah, do you think uh, Canada's doing any better of a job or worse of a job than the U.S.? Because I know you have a foot in each country, so to speak. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I think, you know, in terms of resources and population, I mean, we're – we're a huge country with, you know, less people living in it than live in California. We we have a, a long road ahead of us of resource extraction. So, I mean, we're just getting started. So, uh, but we're going down the, you know, the same road as anywhere else on the planet. We're not, we're not doing it, to, you know, thinking in the long term. We're thinking of it in the short term and the almighty dollar. And we're no different than anybody else, I don't think, uh, you know, I learned a lot from a fellow named Ray Travers who worked for government, and he sent me some information in unmarked envelopes. He's, he really helped me out a lot in the bridge fight. I don't even know if he's still alive today, but he uh, used, for example, New Zealand. and uh, He said they had a huge economic downturn because they overlogged, and then they turned their country into, you know, tourism and, and sheep and uh, planted a bunch of California fish stocks there, and now everybody wants to go to New Zealand. They want to go to south america for all the sea run this and planted stuff and here we are where we have wild stocks we're not managing for wild so i guess maybe we'll go the way of the dodo bird or new zealand we're going to end up having to recreate ourselves once we screw it up it's just you know it's so dumb you know we're we're 
helper. We don't need to reinvent the wheel here, and we don't need to reinvent stewardship or being responsible for for amazing resources. I mean, we, but, I, you know, it's just kind of our human nature. I, that's why I, in the book I said, you know, can't really do too much about these things. I mean, you should try and make a difference and try and do some positive things, you know, as opposed to apathy. But really, you know, at the end of the day, as much as my guests supported me, and they did a fantastic job of supporting me and giving extra funds and everything, but they came for fishing and fun and friendship. I mean, that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to forget about all this crap because I don't think in their home rivers they were solving anything either. I, You know, I keep in touch with people like Dave Hall and on the North Lumpqua River, and the summer run there is, you know, it may be gone. And that's just an amazing river. And you have Frank Moore, an amazing Frank Moore, World War II veteran, and he just got, you know, through Congress that 50-mile protecting buffer for the Steamboat Creek, the spawning tributary of the North Uncle. What a, what a fantastic ending legacy for that amazing man, you know. But we, we're just not doing enough of these kind of things for rivers, even though we've got some mentors and some examples out there. But but the Steelhead story, for example, is not a happy story from, you know, L.A. to Anchorage or to the Sandy right. River on the Aleutian chain. I mean, we're losing Steelhead big time, and that's one of the reasons – you know, a local controversy here is all the crowding, you know, when we had all these steelhead here. and But, you know, so many of those people are coming to the Skeena because they've already lost what they remembered when they were younger at their home rivers, and they're just coming up here to get a fix. We're all kind of, you know, angling junkies in some ways. It's kind of interesting yeah. that we are. <laughs> yeah. You know, it gives so us how much a, has it, it gives us a – yeah, go ahead. How much has it changed since since you originally went up there? And where it is today. I mean, what could a what could a yeah. uh, fly fisher expect back in the days when you started, and what can they expect today as far as fishing for steelhead? Yeah, I mean, I can just tell these ridiculous stories that people don't really want to. They can't believe it, so I would just be spewing a bunch of amazing stories. I mean, the catch rates were ridiculous. Um, you know, good old Bill Herzog back in the day when he was pushing his his spoon you know, is is DC Steel, and, and he was a guest of mine, and, you know, yeah, he caught ridiculous amounts of fish, and I get a phone call from somebody, read his article or whatever, called me up and says, I just want to know if that was a bunch of bullshit, and I'd say, well, no, it wasn't, click, and it was just yeah. click, like, but, for example, yesterday, I hadn't been below the fish counting fence for two Novembers ago, so I hadn't been steelheading down downstream for quite some time, letting Billy and Carrie, you know, run their business. I'm not interfering. I went down there with my son yesterday. As soon as we launched the boat, we saw four grizzlies. And then I, we were able to fish four runs, um, three of them that hadn't been fished at all that day, and then one that had been fished all morning. And I landed a 20-pound steelhead and a waking fly that I tied. Now, you can't just go to any river and get a 20-pound steelhead on a waking fly in one day. I mean, so that's the Babian River today. It still has some magic, but it's not near as magical as what I fell in love with, no doubt about it. But then, I mean, most of us can tell that kind of story if you, you know, know a a place, you know, special really well. these, These places are all under stress right now. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, Did, um, you, know. you said you caught your steelhead this uh, 
this week on Awaking Fly. What, how has fly fishing, uh, as far as strategies and techniques, on the being changed, or, or has it not? I mean, do you fish differently now that there are less fish, or that they're harder to yep. catch? Kind of probably the today. Yeah, the biggest paradigm shift in fly fishing has been the conversion. Well, if we're talking steelhead, the conversion from single-handed rods to double-handed rods. It is so rare to see anybody with a single-handed rod out there anymore. That's amazing. And the double-handed rod has allowed people that never really became very accomplished single-handed rod anglers to all of a sudden cover a lot more water a lot easier and given themselves, you know, more of a chance to catch steelhead. So that that is a huge, huge change. And I think the fish before didn't get pounded quite as heavily as as they do now just because of switching to double-handed rods and all the plethora of the latest, greatest fly lines and tips and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I think when I, most of my guiding career until, you know, the 21st century was, you know, learning that river on, from a single-handed rod point of view, and it was much more challenging than now with a double-handed rod. So I think that's a huge change. And I think the other huge change probably is sport jets that, you know, allow navigation in, in shallow and treacherous waters um, with a little more forgiveness, shall I say, so that, you know, we have all sorts of uh, manner of float craft and power craft now that, you know, has crowded up the rivers quite a bit. So, you yeah. know, it's not like Atlantic salmon on the Gas Bay where they, you know, really manage the uh, angler per kilometer density or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But yeah. I'd say now those two you, things have, have changed things. Now, mm-hmm. the, the two-handed rod allowing the, I mean, it, what are the advantages to the fly fisher with a two-handed rod for steelhead over the one-handed rod? I just... Yeah, just that you can you can cover more water easily, especially if you don't have any backcasting room, because a lot of people with single-handed rods, they didn't master the Bus Bergman roll cast, you know, from Bill Shad of California that he learned it from. Yeah. Um, you know, if you weren't a good roll caster, there was a lot of good water that you couldn't fish very well. And so, you know, and all the what I call the fancy casts of double-handed rods, they all end up, in the end, being a roll cast, every single one of them. Yeah, one big roll cast. (laughs) One big roll. So you've got a big rod, and you can, you know, you can roll cast a lot easier with a big rod than a smaller rod. And uh, so, yeah, people just can cover more water, far more water than they ever could with a single-handed rod. And guess what? They catch more fish. So, I mean, it's a cause and effect thing. It has changed. One of my ex-guests, he, he said he was, you know, at, at uh, you know, steelhead camp, and uh, a new guide, you know, kind of came up to him and he was checking him on in the river and how you doing, and he said, well, what, what kind of rod is that? And he saw the single-handed rod, and he didn't know what, what, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Well, I thought that was pretty funny to hear, but yeah, it's it's pretty rare to see the you know, old school guys out there casting single-handed rods anymore. But, yeah, you know, yeah. my point on that is that on the Babine, the one thing that makes it unique to me from a dry lining point of view and waking fly point of view, because the fish are super friendly to that technique for whatever reason you want to say, but with a single-handed rod and a short cast, you can be really close to the action. And for me, as a guide, that was something me and my other guides, we were really trying to show the guests that 
you know, get close to the fish and watch the take. And, yeah. you know, we became, you know, adrenaline junkies and pushers and priests of the dry line because just because of that. And I think with a single-hand rod as well, you tend to fish a little closer to you. And for most steelhead rivers, the fish are close to you anyway. A double-handed rod, well, yeah, you can try and cast across the river and cover as much water as you can, but you won't see near the excitement way the heck out there that you will with a single-handed yeah. rod and a short cast. So that was something. And yesterday, that's what I did. I had a single-handed rod with a floating fly line and a waking fly, and I wasn't casting very far from me, and I saw this 20-pounder come out of the water and grab that fly, and, I, you know, that that you know, cured me for another few months, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's yeah. a question so from, I, uh, yeah. from Peter in uh, Fernie, D.C. He says, do you have a fly color preference um, mornings, afternoon, and evenings? I have fished the Bulkley River, and it seems that mm-hmm. everyone there mm-hmm. thinks if you're not fishing blue and black, you're not fishing the right color. What do you think of this? Yeah, well, I say to Peter, no, it's black and blue, not blue and black. But anyway, oh. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, steelhead, um, they're amazing fish. They, you know, they will, they'll eat anything. So, you know, if you ask, for example, at my steelhead camp, if I ask my guest, everybody to bring their own fly box and lay it on the table and open it up, I mean, you'd have to conclude that steelhead will eat anything. But um, so for me, preference is is dry line, uh, preferably waking a fly, and second to that, wet fly, simply because I want to see the action. And there's just a number of waking flies and wet flies that a person can use with confidence, um, and it really doesn't have to be a black and blue waking or wet fly. Now, when it comes to sink tips and, and you know, being deeper uh, in the mid-column or right on the bottom or crashing the bottom or whatever it is you're into, Again, so many different patterns, and I, I think the real good steelheaders that you learn from, you, you notice that they have a particular technique, a, a, an almost a you know, very, very consistent, repetitive technique for success that uh, distinguishes them maybe a little bit more from the average angler. Those guys, you know, I, I was lucky to watch a lot of great steelheaders and learn from them. So certainly it's it's your technique, but then also it's fishing. It's not so much the fly, it's fishing you know you need to learn how to fish and i think that's more important than flies but then after a while you're going to end up over the years being the kind of angler whether it's trout or steelhead and i bet you'll it'll come down to you know maybe half a dozen of your favorite trout and steelhead flies that you kind of go to all the time because you have confidence so that's another thing that's hard to explain is is to have confidence in your fishing ability to the point where the fly isn't as important to you, although you'd think so because somebody will say, well, you seem to just use those kind of flies, you know, as opposed to 20 or 30 different patterns. So, you know, Peter may be right that, you know, some people have such confidence with blue and black or black and blue, and, and I know why. They catch steelhead. There's no doubt about it. So, you know, if, if that's what you're catching fish on, probably you're going to use it more. That's the other thing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting that um, that you say that because um, I mean I I'm hearing the same. I mean I've interviewed what over 200 guests on my show and and many times it comes down to well what's more important the fly or the presentation 
99% of the time it's the presentation. <laughs> and I just yeah. uh, interviewed Doug Gibson, who guide, who's guided, I, I forget, the number of years, let's say 50 years on the, the Henry's Fork, which is supposed to be a tough fishery, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he, uh, he listed off his flies. I think he maybe had six or seven flies that he uses. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> and they, so and they were like pheasant tails, and you know the old standbys, right? And he says, "I don't need yeah. any more than that. I catch fish every day for me and my clients. We don't need any more flies than that." <laughs> and I yeah, that was well, great. <laughs> yeah. If you if you went to my trout old trout lodge now up in the office, I've got I've got uh, probably you know ten thousand dozen flies up there, and uh, you know because I was trying this and trying that and trying this and trying that, and now when I fish, you know. Rainbow Alley, I use, uh, you know, one or two patterns for the spring salmon fry hatch, and, and I use about three or four patterns for the dry fly fishery, and I don't even use nymphs. <laughs> and if I did, I'd probably <laughs> only have three or four of those. So, yeah, yeah that's what uh, happens to you. You find out for your local fishery what the fish seem to like and, uh, and you know, what it seems to produce the most. And if you can't catch them in a productive fly, chances are there's some other thing going on that day, whether it's the weather or, you know, something right. else is affecting uh, the, the bite, so to speak, because uh, it's probably not your fly for the most part. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. It's just we got a couple weather. Of, we can't uh, control the weather and water conditions. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, we got a couple questions come in here on the Internet. Um, and I don't understand this, but you can probably explain it. Uh, Graham in Calgary says, can you ask <laughs> Pierce, how can, you know who this is? <laughs> yes, I know who this is, yes. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, so what's his question? Uh, he says, can you ask Pierce how the Babine Steelhead Lodge can run so many extra weeks now with the same amount of rod days? What is What are rod days and what's he talking about? Yeah. Well, when I the raw day allocation I sold was uh, uh, six hundred and I think it was six hundred and twenty, maybe a little off. But that's fine for conversation's sake. So that's for September and October. So when you are expected by government to use your raw day allocation, they threaten to take away your raw days if you don't sell them all, and they threaten to take away your license if you use more than your raw days and. For example, the Guide Outfitter Association of British Columbia and, you know, Guide Outfitters Hunting Guides, government gives them a plus or, plus or minus 10% variance on their quotas because they know, you know, when you're running a business, you're generally overbooking because you're going to lose, you're going to have cancellations, you're going to have unexpected health issues. You know, your, your ability to master a particular, you know, quota target year in, year out is, you know, it's just not possible. It's not, you know reasonable and it's not possible. Well, same with the raw day allocation. You, you try and use that 620 in September and October, but in August and November and December, there is no raw day allocation. So that's why I extended my season up to, you know, November 18, if you can, you know, take the cold, so to speak. And I tried August too, but there wasn't enough fish. And I actually ended up <clears throat> not starting with guests until September 7th. Uh, through, you know, the end of October for the classified rod day period. And that rod day allocation basically came down to about 11 anglers a week for that ten and that uh, nine and a half week season. And then the extra two weeks after that or whatever I could do in November was always a bit of a, a hard sell because, you know, people were afraid of the weather. But, you know, now with climate change, I mean, you could probably, 
I mean, Billy could probably keep the thing open possibly to the end of November now, the way things are going with the weather. So to answer Graham's question, I was using my rod day allocation, no more, no less, to the best of my ability. In November, there was no allocation, so I could I could sell as many spots as I thought I could convince people to fish in November. And August was basically a write-off, so I gave off, gave that up. So yeah, yeah. so so Billy Billy and the other two operations on the Babine, they're not using more than their total raw day allocations. We haven't been doing that for years, and most of the time. My competition back then, Babbing Steelhead Lodge, they had less rod day allocation. I think it was 487, and they had trouble using that allocation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, every business is different, but you're supposed to use your total allocation on threat of losing it if you don't or losing your license if you abuse it. That's the policy. I could see the abuse problem, but uh, that that could be a like a – Snowball going downhill, you know, if you don't use them, you lose them until you got none to use, and <laughs> what do you do, you know? It's well, like, for sure. Yeah, yeah, government, you know, basically they, you know, it's the carrot and the stick. I mean, their stick is a threat to do yeah. something, but over the years, you know, they haven't done too much of that um, because you are, you know, it's people's livelihood, you know, it's families, it's uh, businesses. Um, you know, you try and be reasonable, I mean, really, and... Uh, I mean, that's the bottom line, and if, you know, it's their job to catch you if you're trying to cheat or whatever, and uh, I didn't see that there was any cheating going on uh, on the Babine with myself and my competitor, but, you know, the world is full of characters out there, you never, <laughs> what can yeah. I say, but um, I, uh, my wife and I, we we uh, kept to our rod day allocation, and, and we, you know, we tried to come as close to that 620 as we possibly could. And within, for us, it was, you know, 5% plus or minus, and very rarely plus because, uh, you know, we were being watched. So Yeah. And, yeah. You know, well, I don't anyway, know if Graham is a competitor, an enemy, or what, but <laughs> he has a second part of his question to, to ask Pierce uh, why the Babine Steelhead Lodge runs their boats downstream on plane when for the last 50 years everyone idled. Um, and I remember in your yeah. book talking about yeah. idling downstream, so I know you do it. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, you know, that was again. Uh, I try to keep to lodge tradition. So Ainer Matson, and and really it was out of fruitfulness more than anything else. So back in the day when I first started, and, and that was my training in 1985 under the Matson family. You had your 1969 40 Johnson. You had one tank of gas allocated for your day to move, you know, the three of us to move 18 guests around all day long. And let me tell you, you had to be smart about the gas you used. So obviously idling downstream saved fuel. So part of it was the Ainer Matson saved fuel and your rationing. But I soon thought that the other benefits were to sneak up on wildlife, you know, joy, enjoy the whole environs, Right. Learn the current, you know, learn how to use the currents better with the jet boat because we had a quite a narrow channel to, to navigate. So you, you became a better jet boater. And then the best part of all, you know, to get people in the fish, you're spotting fish. So yeah. if you're blown around the river all day unnecessarily, I mean, you, you don't learn the river very well. And, and they haven't. And that's as yeah. far as I should go into that, but they haven't. Yeah. <laughs> they still okay. haven't. Well, we gotta we gotta finish things up here. A couple last questions. 
uh, is the Babine still a fly fishing destination that should be on one's bucket list? And what's the future of, of the river? Yeah. yeah, you know, I'd have to say yes because just case in point yesterday, I mean, where do you go yeah. to, you know, land a 20-pounder and a waking fly in one day? You know, what, you know, what what river do you do that, you know, with regularity? Like, like I think you, you still can on the Babine, so I think that's exceptional. Um, the future, well, the Skeena watershed is in trouble right now, and the, the future is uncertain. And, um, you know, I really, I'm sad about that for sure. My heart and soul and mind and body is, you know, is all in on Babine, and uh, I still have the old trout lodge, and I spend as much time as I can out there. I love the place, and it's just, it's sad to see the so many values disappearing. This will be the second fall. Last year was the first fall. I, I fear the same this year. There's no ducks and very few geese. Like, where did the ducks and geese go? And there's less of this and less of that. You know, there's less sand, yeah. less steelhead, less moose. There's less grizzlies. There's, you know, there's less migratory birds. All kinds yeah. of different migratory birds aren't there. They're less small game. The little critters that live in the bush. There's, there's all kinds of things going on, and I, I'm not... You know, I don't know what's going on, but I, you know, I hear about it all over the world too. So it's very disturbing to, you know, to be knowledgeable that you know things are are changing, and I don't, you know, I don't know what the future is. And it, I guess, based on the past, it doesn't look so good. But it's going to be worse if we don't actually make some good, hard, fast decisions right now, like get rid of the open net cage fish farms, no-brainer decision. Get rid of non-selective harvest. Uh, techniques like gill nets, no-brainer. Start making logging companies make proper proper buffering for spawning gravel and spawning beds, and and the you know the tributaries that spawn fish just don't get the protection they need under the you know the current forest practices. And yeah. the mining, like you said, you know, making sure that acid rock drainage just never enters a, a fish-bearing stream of any kind, including trout and trout lakes or whatever. Um, yeah. You know, we got to. Do we have to make those decisions? Yeah, we're I think done with the excuses. Um, you know, it's now's the time. And if we don't, well, yeah, what's the skeena going to look like without a salmon steelhead run? You're going to have to start telling me what that's like because all I see is a for a management tool is closure now, just closure. And that to me is not a, a management tool. That's a it's over tool. You know, and I, I, I never thought after 34 years of living here that I would be saying what I just said. I just that, that is hard to take. It's hard to take. Well, here's a, <laughs> uh, a closing comment by Martin uh, Landholm in uh, uh, Meridian, Idaho. He just wrote in on the internet. He says a great opportunity to learn more about the Babine River. He says I fished for steelhead all my life. I was concerned to hear the steelhead runs on the Babine have which are not what they used to be. I'm from Idaho, where we're now looking at our steelhead runs being eliminated in Idaho. So it's nice comments by Pierce Clegg. So, um, yeah. That kind of yeah, I've been, I've been watching up. the Columbia River. Yeah, I've been watching what's going on in the Columbia River. It's one of the, you know, North America's largest drainages. It comes into Canada, way deep into Canada here, too. Um, right. You know, what's going on there, you, and, and the Fraser this year, too. And, you know, and Thompson River steelhead, bye. So who's next? You just keep going north. 
Now it's the skin yeah. and the NAS. After that, it's going to be Alaska. This may be the yeah. third year in a row that Alaska applies for uh, federal disaster funds. Like, something's up, and it's serious. Yeah. And we all have yeah. to wake up. That's that's uh, all I can say well, about that. Well, let's hope but, we yeah. do. And if we do have an opportunity to lend a hand, that's important. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, who knows what the future will bring. Well, thanks, Pierce. Um, Stay with me a few more minutes here. We're going to give away a few prizes and your book, uh, so I'd appreciate it if you hung in there. And um, when we return, we'll we'll be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International, a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, and a copy of Pearson's book, Babine, courtesy of Amato Books. Um, And we didn't mention, actually, your your latest book out there now. And it's uh, also on the Babine. It's called Somewhere Down That Famous River, which is a memoir of yours as well, and that's available through Wild River Press. Um, so folks, check that out too. And you have to buy it, I believe, directly from Wild River Press, right? Pierce? That's correct. Yeah, okay. you can either yeah, that do on that on through Amazon, Tom, which I yeah, totally encourage. And then I also have a website, uh, Rainbow Alley um, Lodge.ca that. Uh, you can also purchase the book from. But, yeah, Tom's uh, handled it just fantastic, and he yeah. is my uh, co-publisher for the for the second book. Yeah. Yeah, and so give us your uh, website address again, Rainbow River Lodge, was it? RainbowAlleyLodge.ca. Oh. Yeah. RainbowAlleyLodge.ca. Yeah. So I'm yeah. sure you can provide an autographed copy if they order directly from you, right? And, uh, yep, you betcha. And, uh, you betcha. Yeah, so uh, so check uh, Pierce out there and uh, and uh, get your book there. So, um, okay, Family Ties, that's T-Y-E-S. Family Ties is an organization which uses a shared interest in fly fishing and fly tying to enhance youth development and family relationships. They utilize resources in schools, communities, and businesses, and they invite your participation. Go to their website at familyties.com. That's family, T-Y-E-S.com. Family Ties, where every fish is a trophy and every kid is a hero. And just uh, a reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, What did you think of the show? Uh, just click on that link, leave your comments. Uh, we really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away a few of the prizes. These are randomly selected from our show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show, and uh, you don't want to miss out on a a chance to get one of these uh, great prizes that we offer. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first thing we're giving away is a membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. They do a lot with conservation around the world, so check them out if you don't win tonight. It's a great organization to support. And our winner for that is um, William Plamondon. I probably destroyed your last name, William, but uh, up in Maine. So, uh, William, congratulations on winning the FFI membership. I know you'll enjoy it. And um, the second thing we're giving away is one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com, amatobooks.com. And our winner for that is Tom Barry, Tom Barry in Ohio. So uh, congratulations, Tom, on winning that uh, Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And now we'll give away 
Pierce Clegg's book, Babine. And uh, if you want to know more about Babine and the history of Babine, then, um, uh, then you'll want to win this book. Or go out and buy it afterwards if you don't win. So uh, check it out. It's called The Bean by Pierce Clegg and Peter McMullen. And um, the let's see, the question, you're going to go to our home page and fill out an answer there. Uh, the question, and then, and then submit your answer along with your name and location on our home page there. First person that gets it right will win the book. The question is... Um, the Babine is a tributary of what river? The Babine is a tributary of what river? And now we've got a slight delay on when they actually hear me, it appears, so they have to kill a little time, and then they have to type in the answer. So we'll keep checking the queue here to uh, see who's going to uh, win your book and uh, and be be very happy. Yeah, give it, you could give them, give them a hint, the... The, the what river is uh, also called the river of mist. Oh, the river of mist. Aboriginal yeah. community. Yes, river uh, of mist. So we're uh, we're still checking here, and uh, oh, okay. So uh, one of the people that asked questions tonight, um, Peter Harrison Edge in Fernie, uh, says Eskina. I think he got it right, didn't he? Yep, he did. <laughs> and yeah, good question okay. by Peter, too. Yeah, yeah, about the fly color and so forth, I think it was. Yeah, so uh, good. Hang in there, Peter. And uh, Now, Peter, you're going to need to send me that your address. Uh, you can do it in that same window that you just provided your answer to, and um, and then we'll get that, uh, that book sent out to you from Amato. So send me your address. I have your name and your email address here, but I just need your address, and we'll get you set up. So uh, congratulations, Peter, and uh, thanks for paying attention and being with us tonight. We really appreciate it. Uh, Pierce, hey, I really appreciate you being on with us tonight. It's a pleasure, and uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot by reading your books. Um, you know, at times I was laughing. At times I was shedding a tear, you know. So uh, uh, <laughs> it was very enlightening, and um, thanks for sharing your, your life, really, with us in those books and tonight as well on the show. Well, I really do appreciate thank it. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, and thank you very much. I appreciate you being a part of uh, spreading uh, the word and, and the stories and the memories. And uh, thank you very much. It was awesome. Sure. You're welcome. You're welcome. Hopefully, um, you all have found the archive on our website. If you haven't, just look uh, for the link on the top line menu. And you see the archive there. We've done over, actually, I think tonight is the 300th show. Pierce, you might be. Uh, wow. Breaking the record here tonight. Uh, yeah, 300 shows tonight. So um, uh, it's a, a big uh, number to meet <laughs> for me after all these years. Uh, yeah, but I'm glad I'll you were say. part of it. Yeah. So check out the archive. Type in uh, river names, fish names, uh, techniques, uh, whatever you want, and you'll be surprised at all the, the shows we've done on on all of these things and uh, lots to learn by by going through our archive. Our next broadcast will be on October 2nd, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. And on that show, I'm going to interview George Daniel. And the topic for the show will be nymph fishing, new angles, tactics, and techniques. George Daniel has guided clients and fish competitively throughout the world. His desire to learn as much as possible about his craft and adapt his techniques have given him a superb understanding of what it takes to get a nymph to a fish. 
There are many right ways to deliver your nymphs, whether it be contact nymphing or suspension nymphing. So listen in and learn George's latest strategies and techniques so you can up your game. I'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, Baja Fly Fishing, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com so that you can uh, sign up to receive our announcements and uh, you won't miss out on our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Bye.